After a few weeks off, today we return to our study of the Beatitudes, and so please would you open with me to Matthew chapter 5 once again. We will look specifically at verse 8, Matthew 5, verse 8. By way of reminder, as we think about the Beatitudes, we need to remember Jesus is not giving commandments. Jesus is not offering us duties which we must obey, obedience that we must render in order to receive God's blessing. Rather, Jesus is bestowing blessing. He is describing how the kingdom of God is breaking into this age. The work of God in the life of the individual is seen, it is, it is made evident through these virtues that are produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And so as the covenant Lord, He is declaring these virtues, these characteristics mark the blessed life, the happy life, the flourishing life. The life that enjoys God's favor no matter what the circumstances. And honestly, I, I don't think that any other beatitude makes these things quite so explicit as this one right here. Blessed are the pure in heart. So let's read then with this in mind. We'll begin uh, five, chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew 5, 1. We'll read down through verse 8. Let's listen again to the voice of the Lord in the midst of His gathered people. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me again. Father, we are reminded again this morning, as you say in your word countless times, you do not look as man looks at appearances, but the Lord God looks to the heart. And Father, as we think about this, it frightens us. It humbles us. It rebukes us. Lord, that you can see down to our inmost being. We pray then, Lord, that you would show us mercy this morning, that you would wound in order to heal, that you would speak in order to sanctify, Lord, that you would convict in order to lead us into that joy of our salvation that we have in Christ. So bless this word, we pray. Bless it for our salvation and growth in the gospel. We pray through the name of our great high priest, the one who makes us clean, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we've gone through the Beatitudes one by one, at each step, we've kind of considered how countercultural and how counterintuitive they just instinctively are. Our natural intuition, and of course the world around us as well, um, doesn't value poverty of spirit, or mourning, or meekness, or... Showing mercy. We don't instinctively think, our, our culture certainly doesn't value um, that these things lead to 
what we might call the happy life or the flourishing life, the blessed life. But when we come to this one, and we, this idea of pure in heart, we might think here, well, well, okay, here's finally one that we can agree on. There's a virtue that everyone highly esteems, right? Now think about it. If somebody said of you, they said, oh, that person's really, you know, you're really pure in heart. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we take that as, you know, the highest of compliments? Doesn't everybody in some sense desire to be pure in heart? We don't value people who are inwardly corrupt. We don't value people who are hypocritical, acting one way while inside there's something very different. We don't value people who are insincere. It seems as though pure in heart is a virtue that everyone desires and esteems, no matter what religion or what worldview you might come from. But here, of course, it's important to remember that Jesus is speaking of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What we often mean by pure in heart is not necessarily what Jesus is talking about, even though there is, of course, some overlap. I think when we see this, we recognize that the purity of heart that Jesus speaks of here is not at all esteemed by the world or the flesh. Ultimately, we don't like being told that everything wrong with us And that everything wrong with the world around us doesn't lie in what we do or what we don't do. Or in what we know or what we don't know. Or what we experience or what we don't experience. Or in what we choose or what we don't choose. We don't like being told that everything that is wrong with us and everything that is wrong with the world around us lies entirely outside of our our control to change. The world and the flesh want solutions to problems. They want action. They don't want thoughts and prayers, right? Give me rules to live by. Give me standards to keep. They don't like the fact that the seat and the citadel of all of our troubles lies at the heart level and that we are powerless to change that. But this is what Jesus declares here. Yeah, we may think, okay, blessed are the pure in heart. That sounds wonderful and inspiring. But what if we read that alongside Proverbs 29, which asks rhetorically, almost mockingly, who can say, I have made my heart pure? Nobody. Nobody. Thus, what this really becomes is, blessed are the pure in heart, something you are not by nature, and blessed are the pure in heart, something you cannot accomplish in your own strength. And brethren, the natural flesh in the world hates that. And yet, what we find here with Jesus in these words, no doubt, is the fact that purity of heart is the very essence of the Christian faith. What is Christianity all about? What is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What is central to everything that Jesus taught? It all relates to the reality of pure in heart. God desires truth within. God doesn't just desire a change of behavior. He could force us or make us shape up. Christianity is about inward change. In fact, as 
If I may be so bold, Christianity is not about making your life better on the outside. It's not about making other people's life or society better on the outside. Rather, Christ came and lived and died to cure our greatest problem and to defeat our greatest enemy. And that's our internal defilement. And He came to do that so that purity and virtue and obedience flow from the inside out. So for those who, uh, to quote Acts 15.9, those who have cleansed their hearts by faith in the Holy Spirit, this passage assures us that our greatest problem has been dealt with and the greatest possible blessing has been secured. That we shall see God. That's what I want you to consider, want us to consider from this passage today. Well, as we break this down, just like the other Beatitudes, the idea of being pure in heart relates to our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And that's how we're going to break it down under those three points today. So first, I want to consider being pure in heart in relation to our justification. That is, in relation to how we are made right with God in our conversion. If we think about this phrase, purity of heart, in its context, we'll see that there is both a narrow and a broad reason for why Jesus uses this phrase. Why does he say it here? Well, the immediate reason, the narrow reason, is really to contradict the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. That's part of the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. We know, of course, that the religious leaders of that day prized outward holiness. They prized outward purity, prized outward religious devotion, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They neglected inward purity. They they cleaned the outside of the cup, Jesus said. While the inward was filthy. They were a whitewashed tomb, right? It was beautiful on the outside, but inside it was rotting, decaying flesh. The Pharisees were very strict in matters of outward obedience, but they neglected the internal. So this is why Jesus says this here. And of course, we know that there's nothing new under the sun. We know that we are tempted to these very same things in our day. If I may be so blunt as to say it this way, such a view is a false gospel. It's another gospel altogether if you think your greatest problem and your greatest temptation lies outside of you rather than inside of you. You can't separate from the world enough to escape sin. You can't have the best circumstances possible in order to escape sin. You cannot sanctify yourself or fix your greatest problem no matter what you change on the outside. So Jesus here, He's going after the heart. We think about the heart. The heart is our minds, how we think. It is, it is our wills, our decision making. Our heart is the affections and and desires and emotions, what we love, what we hate, what we fear, what we feel, what's most natural to us. Jesus is going after the heart. And of course, if we balance this with what we heard earlier from Matthew 15, we know that 
from the heart, Jesus says, flow out everything that is wrong with us. All of the evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality and theft and false witness and slander flows out of the heart. Defilement is something that is within. And so that's what Christ is trying to to nail down here. The reality that the heart is a problem. The heart is the crux of everything that is wrong in the world. And unless there is a purity of heart, no part of your life is going to be pure. So that's the narrow reason why Jesus mentions it. God desires truth within. But the broader reason, of course, is that this idea of purity and cleansing and defilement, um, of course, takes up a substantial portion of the Old Testament. When you think for a second about the Old Testament, washings and cleansings and the purification rituals. There was a very elaborate system in the Old Testament. It was inescapable to day-to-day life if you touched a dead body, for example. You were unclean. You were defiled. If you had what some very normal bodily functions. If you had some sort of spot on your skin or disease or, or even a bald spot. You were unclean. You were defiled. And if you were defiled, you couldn't enter the temple. You couldn't worship with the saints, draw near to God. In some cases, you couldn't even be around people, the holy community. And so depending upon what caused the defilement and the measure of it, you had to perform washings or rituals or sacrifices in order to to be restored. Excuse me. Of course, the reason behind all these things all these physical, um, um, uh, these physical earthly defilements and washings and stuff, God was pointing them to something greater. God was telling them, trying to teach them and us, that defilement is everywhere and it's inescapable. It's as if He says, you want to know how prevalent and unavoidable and natural defilement is? Well, here, let me give you these earthly metaphors, living metaphors, as it were, to show you just how easily and how prevalent you are defiled. This points us to the greater reality. The greater reality is what we heard and what we sang earlier from Psalm 24. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart can stand in God's holy presence. God cannot dwell with a sinful people. So brethren, we we need to make sure, I, I want to make sure that you don't miss this. Only the pure in heart can stand in God's presence. Only the pure in heart will live in eternity. Only the pure in heart will experience, will enjoy the resurrection of the dead. Only the pure in heart will see God. And there's nobody, no one among us who can make their hearts pure. This is why David in Psalm 51 cries out, God created me a clean heart. He looked beyond the Old Testament rituals. 
He looked with the eye of faith, not to the washings, not to the rituals, not to the animal sacrifices, not to the old covenant law, because it did not provide ultimate forgiveness or cleansing. He knew that he needed something greater, something deeper, and so he appeals to God directly, to God alone. Brethren, that's also what we heard from Ezekiel earlier as well. The promise of the new covenant is that God guarantees to give His people a purity of heart. You can't do it, so God promised, I will do it for you. In the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the blood of Christ was shed to forgive us of our sins, and water flowed from His side to wash us, to give us purity within Symbolized in our baptism, it is the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so, brethren, this is what Jesus means when He blesses the pure in heart. It's not a blessing to those pure in mind, as if salvation just comes by knowing certain truths. It's not a blessing to those pure in deeds, as if salvation comes through behavior, avoiding bad things and doing good things. It's not a blessing to those pure in experience as if salvation comes through hearing God, thinking you hear His voice, or feeling God, or having good thoughts about God, or some sort of religious experience of happiness or joy where you just know God loves you. No, this is a blessing to those who are pure in heart. Those who believe and hope only in the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And those who believe and hope only in the cleansing and purification of heart wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. A pure heart is a gift from God. It's separate from our work and from our effort. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 15.9, again, it comes through the Spirit as we cleanse our hearts by faith. That is what pure in heart means in relation to our justification. Faith, the purity that we receive through faith in Christ. Secondly, though, there's also the purity in relation, pure in heart relation to our sanctification. This is in relation to the life that we live in Christ. Purity of heart in our justification is a one-time act. It's cleansing by Christ's blood. It's that one-time conversion, new life, new spirit, new heart that is given when we place our faith in Christ. But that one-time act doesn't stop there. That one-time cleansing begins a process of purification that progresses further and further in the Christian life. In other words, you have to be pure in heart first by faith and right standing with God before you can then begin to practice purity of heart in living. And of course, all those who have been made pure in heart by faith endeavor and long for the life of living a life of purity of heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So what does it mean then, purity of heart, practically speaking? What does it look like? Well, of course, it doesn't mean a sinless life or a perfect life. We still carry around our old flesh until we die. 
But also you need to know, it, it doesn't, neither does it mean just keeping all the rules. You know, living just an obedient life, going to church, doing good deeds, avoiding bad things, giving money to those in service, to those in need. A purity of heart focuses on the inside, primarily. So in the most specific sense, purity of heart means sincerity and devotion. Think of how James speaks of the double-minded man. This is a man who says one thing and does another. A man who claims to believe one thing, but lives as though he really believes another. The double-minded man is a man who is unstable. He's fickle. He's always going from one thing to another. He may express a great desire to live one way, but he always inevitably lives up, ends up living another way. The pure in heart is the opposite of the double-minded man. Pure in heart refers to a life without hypocrisy. A sincere life. A single-mindedness. A devotion. A man in whom there is no guile. A man with an uncompromising devotion to God and the things of God. A man with a wholehearted commitment to obey and follow the Lord in every area of life. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's beneficial. Not just when he feels like it. Jesus taught no one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one or love the other. The Scriptures say that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Love love for God and love for the world cannot go together. Scripture teaches that if you're in love with the praise of men, you will not receive the praise of God. That's why the essence of hypocrisy is at least in Christian circles, is being sincere in the worship of God and everybody is watching, but loose and careless otherwise when the curtains are closed or people aren't around that you're worried about what they think. It's the inwardly filthy, the defiled, those who are not pure in heart, who who wear a mask and, and they say different things and play a different role in relation to who they're talking to or who they're around or what the situation is. Depending on that situation, they might flatter or they might gossip. They might adore or they might hate. They might um, be really kind or they might be really hard. All depending upon the situation. All depending upon what, what kind of persona they want to project. Whatever's necessary to get what they want. But the pure in heart... They don't have those divided loyalties. They're not divided between sin and righteousness or God and the world or the praise of men and praise of God. The divided heart, the uncommitted heart, is the defiled heart. It's kind of like maybe, I don't know, mixing a little bit of sewage water in with your afternoon sweet tea. Right? It may be just a little bit, but it's enough to defile everything. Divided loyalties. So to be, to be pure in heart, essentially it means a life pursuing the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There are no divided loyalties. The life that is lived for the glory of God in every respect of life. But again, to circle back around, we need to remember this is not something that you yourself can do. 
you should just think about it this way. You know, you can purify your actions. You know, I can even help you. Let's break down the law. Right? Let's, let's start putting principles in place. Let's change your habits. Let's get you to stop doing something and to start doing something else. You can purify the outside. But you can't purify your heart. Only the Spirit of God can do that work of sanctification. In fact, that's why if we're seeking to define sanctification in the most specific sense, it's not growth in obedience and growth in doing good deeds. Properly speaking, sanctification is a further purifying of the heart by the Spirit, which then leads to good deeds. These good deeds are done not with a divided hypocritical heart, not for the praise of man, not for to earn merit or favor with God, not for any self-serving motivation, but ultimately out of gratitude to God and for the glory of God alone. That's purity of heart and sanctification. And brethren, that too is promised to us in the Gospel. Through faith in Christ, we are internally cleansed and new life is granted. And being united with Jesus Christ, this internal cleansing continues through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that defilement of mind, that defilement of will, that defilement of emotions and and of our affections is slowly and slowly purified as the image of God is renewed in us day by day. So Christ's purity that cleanses us in salvation is the same purity that continues to cleanse us in sanctification so that our lives begin to begin to manifest a purity of heart and living. Christian is the recipient of this blessing. The recipient of being cleansed by the Spirit both once and ongoing. And that is the purity of heart in relation to our sanctification. But of course, there's a third and final aspect to this purity of heart. And that's in relation to our glorification as well. Our glorification. Now, truth be known, when I speak of glorification, we most specifically are referring to you know, that future and eternity we will enjoy. Um, but before I get there, I want to emphasize that you know, there's a very real aspect um, of our glorification that we enjoy right now. A, a taste of it. Um, so I'm going to balance this point between um, the happiness that we taste in this age, but is only fully enjoyed in the age to come, as well as the seeing of God that we enjoy in this age that ultimately awaits full consummation in the age to come. Already and not yet. So think about purity in heart and the blessedness, the happiness that's given to us right now. As we've seen all along with the Beatitudes, there's, there's a connection between holiness and happiness. The Christian is happy. The Christian is happy because embodying these virtues in the Holy Spirit, we know God is pleased with us. We know that no matter how good or bad our life is going. 
Brethren, just think of what kind of happiness it is to know that Christ has purified your heart by faith. To know that your good deeds flow out of a purified heart. That your love and service flow out of love and gratitude for God. To know that you're not trying to earn His favor or please man or get ahead in this world. To know that you're chiefly concerned with God's glory. To know that that you're not working for merit or for payment. And that God accepts your best efforts even though that you fail again and again because He loves you. That's, That's happiness. That's fulfillment. That's enjoying God's favor. And that's something that we have right now, knowing we have been made pure by faith in Christ leads to a happy life. Not to mention the fact, when you think of how miserable it is to live a hypocritical life, a life of divided heart, I mean, you need to hear me. If, if, If people don't know who you really are deep down, If you're putting on a mask and you are enjoying sins that nobody else knows about, if you're faking it and people don't know the real you, that's a miserable life. It's an exhausting life. It's a life of bondage. Living a a life of divided loyalties, faking it, putting on a mask, always seeking to please other people. That, That kind of life destroys you from the inside out. It will eat away at your soul. Not to mention the fact that, you know what? You can only fake it for so long. Eventually, eventually people are going to see who you really are. In fact, that's one reason why church hopping is such a pandemic in our age. Or epidemic. I don't know the right term there. Church hopping. Average, average church member stays three years and then they go someplace else. Why? Well, because eventually people are going to see your sin. And you're going to see their sin. But if you go someplace new, you get a fresh start. It's like serial dating. As soon as things get hard, just jump to the next relationship. It's all good. Everything's new. Everything's fresh. They don't see who you really are. What a blessing and privilege it is to stay in one place, to know that people know who you are, even with all your flaws and all your sins, and to know that they still love you and accept you because they know your heart. They know that you hate your sin um, as much as anybody else. Such is the blessed and happy life. Such is the life that the Christian enjoys right now. Such is the life that's only possible through a sincere devotion in the local, to the local church. Such is the life that is only possible when we strive to not have divided loyalties. But even more so is the happiness that is promised in how we shall see God. And again, I want to think about this nature of seeing God in the present age. How can we think about this in the present age? Well, the Apostle Paul prays that our eyes would be enlightened. Scripture defines sanctification as beholding the face of the Lord and being transformed into His image. It's because in a very real sense, the blessing that is promised here 
is a blessing that God's people see God right now. The pure in heart see God in His Word. The Scriptures are not just a confusing, archaic, and ancient book. The Christian sees the Lord on every page. They see His attributes. They see His promises. They see um, our Messiah. And this brings us great joy and satisfaction. The Christian sees uh, God in, in the sacraments. The, the, it's not just a strange ritual of bread and wine. With the eye of faith, we see Christ Himself given to us. And this inflames our love for Him. The Christian sees God in the church. They look out of the church and they don't just see a community of people. They don't just see uh, black and white, rich and poor, um, short and tall, male and female, educated and simple. They don't look out of the church and see all just all the flaws and all the sins and all the weaknesses and all the things that are embarrassing. No, they look out and they see the body of Christ Himself. You see His hands. They see His feet. They see His gifts. They see that God is present in the church in a way which He is present uh, nowhere else on earth. And this brings joy. And this, and this inflames our heart for the gathering of God's people in the worship with God's people. Because they see God is there. If you don't value worship, do you see God present in His temple? You might not. The Christian also sees God in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth, the sky, His handiwork. We see traces of His power, of His glory, of His greatness all over the created realm. The Christian sees God in providence. How precious is it? Especially in times of difficulty, when you see God's hand at work in your life. Isn't it? You see how He answers prayer. You see how He shows us mercy. How He sends help right when we need it. How He meets our needs. How He sustains our body and our soul. We see Him in providence. And the Christian who sees Him in providence um, runs to God. In times of suffering, rather than away from him when things get difficult, it's because they know he's there. So the Christian, the Christian sees God in ways that nobody else can. In a, in a very real sense, by faith, our vision of God leads to a sort of heaven on earth. We see God where He is present and our hearts are assured He is my Father. Our hearts are assured Christ is my Redeemer. Our hearts are assured the Holy Spirit is my Comforter. The pure in heart see God everywhere. But to the impure in heart, they don't see God anywhere. Not in nature. Not in the Word. Not in the church. They walk through this world with a veil on, Scripture says. The God of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. We behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and are transformed into His image one degree to another. We need to balance this exhortation with the reality that the hypocrite will never see God as long as he continues in his hypocrisy. 
Not now, and certainly not in eternity. Revelation 21-27, nothing unclean will enter the new Jerusalem, heaven. And yet with all of this, there is an ultimate happiness, an ultimate blessedness, and an ultimate vision of God that await us in eternity. 1 John 3.2 We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We will see God and the hope of that serves to purify us right now. Right now we see dimly through a glass, but one day we will see face to face. Christian theologians down through the centuries have referred to this ultimate seeing of God as the beatific vision. The beatific vision is, is the sight of God that we will enjoy in eternity. And let me be clear here, we won't physically see the essence of God. God is spirit. He cannot be seen by created eyes. Can't be seen by anyone. First Timothy six sixteen. God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. We will not behold God with our bodily eyes. Now we will behold the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, the human person of Christ, with our bodily eyes. But most specifically, the beatific vision refers to how we will see Him with the mind and with the heart and with the soul. God will pull back the veil of His glory and with the eyes of our soul, we will see Him and we will not be afraid. Instantly, we will have a clear and intuitive knowledge of God, an inward vision that far outweighs anything in this life. And the Scriptures speak of this as our greatest joy, our greatest happiness, the greatest and highest good that is possible for a creature. To behold our God. Have you ever seen those videos where they give a pair of uh, special glasses to people who've been colorblind all their life? They're really neat. Um, Almost without exception, uh, when the people put on these glasses and they look out and they see color, they burst into tears. Um, Those videos make me tear up as well watching them. It's very touching. You think about that, so long, for so long they saw dimly. But they didn't quite grasp how dim it really was. And then, and then the world explodes in color. And they're overwhelmed. What they already knew in part was so much grander, so much greater than they could have ever imagined. And brother, this is a helpful illustration of what will be true of us as well. In a moment... In an instant, we will get a sight of God in the soul and we will be overwhelmed with His goodness and with His greatness and with His love for us. Everything we knew in part here on earth, everything will come together and paint a picture far more beautiful, far more colorful than we could have ever imagined because no eye has seen, it has even entered into the heart of man, the things that He's prepared for us. 
So to see God is the entire purpose and end of our faith. And, and, and the, the final consummate goal of our salvation. To know Him face to face. And this then is the blessing and the favor and the promise that God in Christ bestows upon those who are pure in heart. Brethren, as we conclude today, purity of heart is both our greatest need and the greatest blessing that God gives us in the gospel. It addresses our greatest problem and it is the pathway to our greatest joy and highest good to see God. We need to be reminded that hypocrisy and unbelief and ignorance and unrepentant living are marks of a defiled heart. But just as in the Old Covenant when defilement came You had to run to see a priest. And the priest could declare you clean. Here too, let us run to our priest. Our high priest. The one who has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The one who has purified, cleansed, atoned all time. For all time, once for all, those who are being sanctified. Let us hear Him today. Let us hear Him as He offers the Gospel. Let us hear Him as He assures us that our hearts are pure and clean in Him. And let us hear Him so that we might live quorum Deo, always before the face of God, knowing that He is present, setting God before our eyes, Um, where He has promised to be seen and where He has promised to be found so that we might draw near, behold His face, be transformed into His image, and be purified by the hope that one day what we see in part we will experience in eternity. Brother, this is the message of our Lord for us this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you are pure in heart by faith, you will see God. Amen. May the Lord give us grace to receive and believe these words. Let's pray.